This morning, I want to point you to an Old Testament passage and ask you just to mark it, okay? 1 Samuel 30, hold it, mark it, whatever you need to do on a digital device or in your Bible. And then we're going to go there kind of to land the plane. So just be ready to go there. We'll be there quickly at the end. But for now, go to a New Testament passage, which are actually some of the last spoken words or recorded words of the Apostle Paul before his execution. He was a martyr for his faith. And he wrote 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. He says this to the young Timothy. He says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I want you to key in on that last phrase there. I have kept the faith. Paul is saying, I didn't compromise. I didn't sell out. I didn't trade my faith for what was behind door number three. I didn't quit when it got hard. I didn't give up when it got lonely. I was committed. I held on to my convictions more than I held on to my own life. I finished well. I kept the faith. I want us to learn from Paul. I want us to learn from that statement from Paul today. I want us to see in Paul and other places what it looks like to be a person of character, commitment, and conviction. I grew up in a really small farm town in East Arkansas, and there was a little tradition in our little town that used to be a tradition in a lot of towns across America um, that uh, it's been a lost commodity in most communities around our country of late. But churches in our little town would co-sponsor a baccalaureate service uh, every year to honor the graduating high school class. It was the faith-based component of graduation that was not allowed in conjunction with the public school graduation ceremony. And it was really a meaningful moment for me when I graduated high school. It was somewhat of a spiritual rite of passage for high school graduates in our community, but it's something that's been lost in most communities in America today. So a few weeks back, I was praying through our services leading into the summer, and I really felt the Lord prompt my heart to make this weekend service a baccalaureate-esque type of service to honor graduating high school seniors and graduating college students and anybody else completing certificates in key educational milestones in their life. But this is a more than a moment to honor graduates. It's an opportunity to make a sacred deposit in their lives in one of the most significant markers in their story. Today's service is going to be relevant to all of us. The Word of God is going to be preached, and there are going to be principles that add value to your life and, and hopefully convict you and challenge you no matter who you are, but especially if you're a young leader in a transition season of your life. So before we do anything else today, let's just honor graduates for a moment. If you're a high school graduating senior uh, within the next few weeks, you already have or you're about to, or a graduating college senior, or you're completing some key educational certificate like a GED or some major milestone in your life, would you just stand wherever you are? Would you? Come on, students. Uh, high school, college. Amen. We honor you today. We honor you today. And I'm talking to everybody today, but I'm really talking to a lot of you. My heart was thinking of you. So when you leave today, if you stood, or maybe you were too embarrassed to stand, but you just finished something that's important to you, okay, stop by uh, Guest Connect and let them know that you graduated and they'll put this gift into your hands. I really, it's a key piece of spiritual formation in my life. A lot of principles in this devotional by E. Stanley Jones that will add 
um, skill sets to your leadership, but will also put a backbone of steel in you about your spiritual conviction. So I encourage you to pick that up at Guest Connect on your way out. My educational journey has become one of the most important parts of who I am as a person. And I can point you to the conversation, the very conversation. I remember it like it was yesterday. It happened almost 30, a little over 30 years ago. And it's the conversation that flipped the switch for me and changed getting an education from a cultural obligation to becoming a sacred call in my life. It was a conversation with my grandpa. And I had never seen him as discouraged as he was that night. The local school board had made a shockingly anti-Christian decision for our small conservative farm town. My granddad had tried to rally a bunch of the larger church pastors that were more influential, more highly educated than he was to come before the school board and address the school board about this issue. Nobody showed up but him. So it was left to him, a bivocational pastor, which means his, he had to have another job to pay the bills because his church was too small. So he was a bivocational pastor of a small Pentecostal church with a third grade education. And the school board politely ignored him, but they ignored his inarticulate and unimpressive speech that night. After the school board meeting, we sat out on his screened-in front porch and had a conversation together. His voice was riddled with personal feelings of failure and inadequacy. And those feelings weren't caused that night, they just culminated that night. His entire life, and specifically in front of the school board that night, the term bivocational meant low social class. The term pastor meant all noise and no substance. The term small meant unsuccessful. And the term Pentecostal meant weird religious fanatic. And his third grade education simply meant his family was too poor to buy books for school and he had to leave school to go pick cotton. My grandfather was a bivocational pastor of a small Pentecostal church with a third grade education. By all the labels that society assigns to people, my grandfather was the last person that should have been approaching the school board that night, the last person they were going to listen to. And against the backdrop of his perceived failure in front of that board and his voice teeming with emotion, he pleaded with me, he challenged me to get an education. And he made sure I understood that this education wasn't just for me. It was for him, it was for our entire family, and it was for poor people everywhere who never had a chance at an education. He told me, it's for the church, Brian. The credibility to the message, your, your education will open doors to have this message listened to in places it would otherwise never have been heard. And so just before he changed the subject, he said, Get the education, son, but never forget where you come from. If you do, all that learning will ruin you. I made a promise that night, a promise that took me 21 years to keep. I walked the aisle nine years ago this month to receive my doctorate, mainly because of that conversation with my grandpa when I was 17 years old. I was, it was making good on a promise trying to earn a seat at a table that my grandfather had never been invited to. I, I never set out to be a scholar. I just wanted to be a learned practitioner. I just wanted to keep a promise and by doing so, do what Paul told Timothy to do. I wanted to be 
show myself approved, study to show myself approved, a workman that didn't need to be ashamed. I tried to finish it all before my grandfather passed away, but he went to heaven just a few months before I graduated. So to finish it for me, right after graduation, I made an eight-hour trek to a small gravesite in a little country cemetery on Crowley's Ridge in East Arkansas. And I took a picture by his tombstone in full doctoral regalia. And I quietly whispered in a private conversation, I kept my promise, Papa. I'm still proud of where I come from. I'm formally educated, and it didn't ruin me. We did it, Papa. We did it. This is my grandma in that picture, and right beside my granddad's tombstone, and she was there for the ceremony. She since has joined my grandfather in heaven today, and so you can obviously understand why that was an incredible moment nine years ago this month for me. But it was even more incredible to me because there was a bunch of men from this church that went with me. We actually took off from the parking lot of this church and rode motorcycles all the way there. Literally, we camped out along the way. We had the ceremony. We camped out coming back. It was an incredible three or four day experience I'll never forget. And to look up from that moment with my family, my grandma, my mom, and then the men from this church that were standing there with me. It was just a monumental day in my life partly because I was the first male in my family on either side of my immediate family to graduate high school. I was the first male or female to graduate college. And like my grandpa said, I knew it wasn't just about me. I found the drive to achieve from this deep desire to give back to those who had very little but sacrificed so much to give me the opportunities that I've had. And I can't tell you why, and I don't exactly know how, but somehow God took this farm kid from the river delta and has given me the privilege of being his ambassador, a spokesperson for him, representing him literally all over the globe in nations of the world I didn't even know existed. I've circled the globe multiple times in my short life. And before my 40th birthday, when I stopped to reflect, it was amazing to me that my life had far exceeded everything, anything I had ever dreamed before my 40th birthday. And now young leaders will come to me and occasionally ask me to help them with some leadership keys or principles that will help forge or steer what what steered my life to this point and what might help steer theirs. And as I've thought about some of the answers that I've given to them in the past, I asked a question today. What life-altering piece of advice could I give you in a few short minutes? What sacred deposit can I make in you? And as I prayed about that, my heart felt drawn back to the topic of commitment. When I look back from the moment I gave my life to Jesus as a teenager to this very moment standing in front of you today, it has been a sense of commitment and conviction that has been the rudder that has steered and guided my life. Nothing, literally nothing happens until we make a commitment. You don't make a significant purchase in your life without making a commitment. No marriage is ever successful without two people making and keeping a commitment between each other. Commitment is the first step. It's not the only step. It's not the last step. But you'll never get started without commitment. You'll never keep going without commitment. And you definitely will never finish without commitment. Anything of value starts with commitment. There's no growth of any kind in your life 
without commitment. No personal development, no spiritual growth, no health and fitness achievements, no academic success. Literally anything good that I know that has value begins with commitment. Commitment is what separates the doers from the dreamers. Commitment is what separates people with a lot of good intentions that never get around to doing anything from those people who actually go on to change the world. Commitment is this unique blend of passion, intentionality, consistency, responsibility, conviction, tenacity, faithfulness, focus, and determination. And when you have it, when you have commitment, it, it inspires and attracts other people your direction. Matter of fact, the scripture even says that commitment in your life, when you're a committed person, it will, it will attract and capture God's attention in your life. Here's what Psalm 35 says, commit everything you do to the Lord, trust him and he will help you. If you commit, God will act on your behalf. Proverbs 16.3 says, commit your actions to the Lord and your plans will succeed. Success is on the other side of your commitment. And your commitment is born from the depth of your character. And I probably don't have to tell you that both of these things, commitment and character, are a rare commodity in today's culture. We live in a culture of convenience where people want what is quick and easy without any effort. We want the reward without the work. We want pains or we want the gains without the pains. We want to reap a harvest in a field that somebody else has worked. So if you want to stand out, you want to be noticed, you want your life to make a difference, then be committed. In a culture of convenience, let your life be the 180 degree opposite of everybody else. Let your life be marked by all in commitment. A committed person is a rare find. From marriage to jobs to friendships to almost anything in today's world, people lack the character to stay committed. They're in it for convenience. Our culture really doesn't understand commitment to the point that the first little wind or storm that blows or test, hardship or adversity that comes, they bail. When it stops being convenient, people forsake their responsibilities and walk away from their commitment. So be different, stand out, stay committed and understand this, every relationship has to have reciprocity, every, every relationship with God, with work and career, in your marriage, pursuing your dreams, in your educational journey with other people. There is no healthy relationship where you can get without giving. That's what reciprocity means. There has to be a mutual give and take. So ask yourself an honest question, okay? Do you give as good as you get? Add up what you're giving Weigh it against what you're getting, and that will tell you whether or not you're a committed person. Are you a taker? Let me just be blunt, a parasite, a leech. Because everywhere in your life, you're trying to get as much as you can while giving as little as possible in return. On the job, at school, in your relationships, or do you have character? Are you a committed person? Do you leave it better than you found it? Do you return something borrowed in better shape than how you borrowed it? Will you give back far more than you've taken? Do you keep trying long after you wanted to quit? If you do, 
You're a committed person. If you are honest with yourself, you do an evaluation, you're honest with yourself and you say, you know, I, I think, Pastor, I probably, I don't want to admit this, but I'm a taker. I'm one of those always trying to take the path of least resistance. I always want the easy way out. I want something for nothing. If that's you, then lean in because you're wasting some of your life. Your entire life's potential is on the other side of your commitment level. Let me say it this way. Your could be is locked up behind commitment. And until you get committed, you will never get what could be. You will never know what's possible. You will never reach your full potential. Commitment is the key that unlocks potential. Some people live their whole lives and never give their entire self to anything. They never go all in for anything. Not at school, not at marriage, not at work, not at church, not with their dreams, not anything. I would hate to get to the end of my life and live with the regret of wondering how things might have been different had I just gone all in and fully committed. All the potential, all the could-bes of your life are locked up, and commitment is the key that opens that door. Now let me take this a step further. Commitment is powerful. But when you move from commitment to conviction, it starts getting deeply spiritual. It goes from the surface to becoming sacred. Because when we talk about conviction, we're talking about the things you're willing to die for. The things you're willing to be excluded for. The things you're willing to lose your reputation over. The things you're willing to lose a job over. The things you're willing to be ridiculed and ostracized for. This is commitment that has been forged into a conviction. And when I think about commitment that has become conviction... I'm reminded of a young man named William Borden. In the early 1900s, at the age of 16, William Borden graduated from a Chicago high school. He was the heir to the famous Borden fortune. His family was incredibly wealthy and he was set to inherit it all. So when he graduated high school, his uh, mom and dad sent him on a trip around the world, kind of a gap year trip around the world before he started his education at Yale University. Earlier in his life, he had come to faith through the ministry of the great evangelist D.L. Moody. And while on this trip around the world, something happened in William Borden that nobody expected to happen. As he traveled through Asia and the Middle East and Europe, he had this growing burden for the world's hurting people. A growing burden for people who had never even heard a presentation of the gospel. So he sat down and he wrote a letter to his parents informing them that he was going to spend the rest of his life being a missionary. It broke his parents' heart. They were devastated. And a friend of his summed up the feelings of his friend group and most of his family by saying he threw away his life. When Borden returned home from that trip, he went into Yale, graduated four years later, with his degree, then went on to earn a graduate degree from Princeton Theological Seminary. And to keep good and honor his call, he boarded a ship to China to go serve the Muslim Kanzu people of China. He stopped in Egypt on the way to learn the Arabic language. And while he was there at the age of 25, he contracted spinal meningitis and he died within a month. The news of Borden's death was telegraphed back to the United States and covered by almost every major newspaper in this country. And his biography states that a wave of sorrow went around the world. Not only did he give up his fortune, but he gave up himself as a missionary. 
when Borden's parents were, received his Bible, it was sent back from Egypt back to, um, to his family, and they found some key statements that had been written in the flyleaf. There are actually three key statements that were written in the flyleaf of Borden's Bible, and they were all marked in conjunction with challenging, specific moments in his life that he was responding to. Just after he had given up his fortune and renounced his inheritance to go to the mission field, it was a tense conversation in his home. He left there and wrote the words, no reserves. His father told him that he would always have a job in the company. But when he decided he wanted to be a missionary, his father was so disappointed in his choices that he told him he would never work in the company again. And after that conversation, he wrote the second phrase in his Bible, no retreat. In the last dying hours of his life, he wrote the last phrase in his Bible, some of the last things he ever spoke or wrote before he passed away, laying there in Egypt, he wrote the words, no regrets. You want to talk about statement of character and and, and commitment and conviction. This is something every one of us could live our lives by. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Was his life a waste? I'll let you decide. He walked away from a fortune to take the gospel of Jesus to the nations. And most people regard it as a tragedy. But God took that tragedy and did something more with Borden's life than his one single life could have ever accomplished. When thousands of young men and women in the U.S. read Borden's story in the newspaper, it inspired them to leave all they had and go give their lives to the nations for the sake of the gospel. Literally, tens of thousands of young adults were mobilized into missions inspired by William Borden's story because character, commitment, and conviction attracts and inspires people. Let me conclude today by pointing you to that Old Testament story. I told you to hold your place in 1 Samuel 30. Here's the story. David was the leader of a 600-man kind of special forces unit. Okay, They had been out on a mission. They're coming back. Their encampment was in Ziklag. They're coming back. David and his 600 men, they see smoke rising from their homes, their encampment. They take off running towards Ziklag. The closer they get, the worse it, it is. Amalekite raiders have come in and raided Ziklag, taken the women and children, all their families hostage, enslaved them and left and burned Ziklag to the ground. The Bible says that David and his men wept until they could weep no more. They wept until they were exhausted. There was a mutiny, like a rebellion that started. The hurt was pointed toward David and they started to kill him. David went to Abiathar, the high priest, And he said, would you consult the Lord and ask what I am to do? And the Lord said, I want you to pursue the raiders. I will give you grace. You will overtake them. You will get your families back. This is going to end well. And David got his men together and they took off to pursue the Amalekite raiders. They come to the brook Basor. Okay, 200 of David's men, he looked back, the king noticed 200 of the men were so maimed, so tired, so exhausted, they couldn't go. And David had to make a decision. These 200 men wanted to go. Their wives and their kids' lives were on the line too. They, they wanted to go, but because of injuries and exhaustion or something kept them. And the king said, hey, gentlemen, look, do this. You 200 men, you stay here. We're going to drop our stuff 
And that way we can travel lighter. We can make up more ground. It'll free the 400 of us to go faster. We're going to recover everything for everybody. We're going to drop everything here. You 200 men just guard the supplies. The 400 went on. They overtook the Amalekites, got all their family back, and they got a lot of spoils of war and brought them back. As they came back to the brook Basor, the 400 men said to King David, Give these 200 men that stayed here their wives and their kids, but don't give them any of the spoils of war. Since they didn't go to battle, they don't deserve to share in the spoils of war. And David said, no, no, that's not how it works. And what David says in this passage in 1 Samuel 30 is what is known as the law of the spoils. Okay, And it literally says in verse 25 that David set this in motion now and it has been that way from that day until this in Israel. It was the edict of the king, the law of the spoils. And this is what the king says. As his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth or stays by the stuff. The king honors those who stay by the stuff. The king honors those who keep the faith. Graduates, students, church family, there are going to be more times in your future than you want to acknowledge when for one reason or another, you're in the 200, not the 400. You're too tired, too broken, too hurt to go out to battle. And when you find yourself in that position, the enemy is whispering and other people are whispering that you're not towing your own. Whatever you do when you're exhausted or anxious or depressed or hurting or tired or alone, whatever you do, don't quit. Stay by the stuff. Guard it. If that's all you got left in you, just guard the stuff. Keep the faith. Listen to me, high school graduate. Are you going to keep the faith and stay by the stuff when your intro to philosophy professor spends the entire first semester of your freshman year trying to talk you out of your faith? Mine did. Mine did. Or are you going to keep the faith and stay by the stuff during pledge week? Or are you going to sell your soul and trade your entire life's identity to gain the approval of some frat boys and sorority girls? College graduate, are you going to keep the faith and stay by the stuff after you find out the company that just hired you is making all its profits through dishonest business practices? Are you going to keep the faith and stay by the stuff when you're targeted at work because of your faith? To every one of us in this room, we've got to make some pre-choice choices. You can't wait and make up your mind when you get in the heat of the moment. You better make up your mind now. It's called having convictions. Our culture lives by situational ethics, which means everybody just does what feels right at the moment. There are no values that drive their decisions. There's no convictions that drive. It's situational. They may respond this way in one moment. They'll respond this way in another moment. There is no guiding conviction or principle in their life. But people of character are different. People of commitment and conviction are different. They start out their day with their mind already made up. 
They don't wait until situations arise. Their life is driven by a predetermined set of values that become their core conviction. They live with a made-up mind. E. Stanley Jones, the guy that wrote this devotional, made this statement. If you don't make up your mind, your unmade mind will unmake you. Stand by your convictions. Keep the faith. Stay by the stuff. I try to think of a way to end the service today that would stiffen our backbones. Like just make us walk out of here and stiffen our backbones a little bit. And I thought, you know, we could do what believers have done for thousands of years. People have been martyred over the Apostles' Creed. Doctrinal beliefs. Paul gave his life for this. Jesus gave his life for this. You want a picture of commitment? Look at the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Character, commitment, conviction. So here's what I want us to do. There's actually a song that takes the Apostles' Creed and we can sing it together. You may recognize it. And before we walk out of this room, graduates, believers from all walks of life, join our hearts together in unity and make a declaration of our faith to God and sing the Apostles' Creed to the Lord. Come on, stand with me across this place today and let's sing our belief, our convictions together.
last verse. Before we do, let me challenge you. When prayer is a chore, stay by the stuff. When duty is a burden, stay by the stuff. When it would be easier to quit, stay by the stuff. When questions arise within you and about you, stay by the stuff. When you're physically weak and emotionally drained, stay by the stuff. When you're in the heat of the battle, stay by the stuff. When victory seems beyond your reach, stay by the stuff. When others seem able and you are not, stay by the stuff. When doing the right thing is the hardest thing, stay by the stuff. When lying is easier than telling the truth, stay by the stuff. When your faith is in the minority, stay by the stuff. When your convictions get you ostracized, stay by the stuff. If you're the only one that stays, stay by the stuff. When the culture says that what you believe is out of sync with the times, stay by the stuff. Don't sell your soul for what's behind door number three. Keep the faith, fight the good fight, finish the race, because the King rewards those who stay by the stuff. Come on, sing your faith. Thank you, Jesus. every graduate watching online in this room today special favor and grace over their lives a few times in my life God I've heard thousands of sermons for some reason you've you've just kind of seared some in my heart and you bring them back up when I when I need them in a challenging moment will you do that today make it a sacred deposit in the heart of young leaders they can draw back on this moment draw strength from their values and their convictions. I pray for every believer in this room, Lord, that 
You would let our lives be guided by a set of principles at home, at work, and our hobbies that would honor you in all we do. That we would be people who are committed. Bless them and keep them. Make your face shine down upon them. Be gracious to them. Turn your countenance their direction and grant them peace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.